The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I am joined, as always, by my partner in crime, Tim Foster. How are you doing today, Tim? I'm well. Great. We're also joined today um, by someone who's going to help us unravel some of the always interesting stuff going on in Southern California politics. And so uh, today to help us uh, unravel, I can say a little bit of that, we're joined by Rob Karinke, um, who is a man of many hats, uh, including a partner with our old friend Mike Madrid in the Grassroots Lab. He's uh, a publisher of California City News, California County News. Uh, I'm sure I'm leaving off probably two or three other titles, Rob, but, uh, you know, we'll go with that. I don't like to talk about all of them anyway. And a a semi-regular guest on the old Capital Weekly podcast. Yes. uh, A privileged post. Well, we're we're thrilled to have you back again today. As I said, we really do want to talk about uh, what's going on around uh, specifically, of course, Los Angeles uh, politics, city and county. Let's start with the first thing. Uh, I, I'm, I know that uh, Karen Bass, of course, she made history, the first, first female mayor of L.A. What's going on with her administration? Is she getting things set up? Uh, is she moving on some of the campaign promises? Uh, give us a Karen Bass update. Yeah, so uh, the main focus, as it is all over Southern California, and particularly in LA, is on homelessness. And Bass really campaigned. The main contrast between her and Caruso, and indeed in a lot of the other races in the city, had to do with what the approach to homelessness would be. Bass has taken office. Uh, She has declared a a state of emergency on homelessness, which gives her some kind of superseding powers uh, to negotiate deals with motels, expedite other kinds of things, um, and to move money around with the permission of the council. Um, She has begun uh, pretty expeditiously to start clearing homeless encampments and moving people into temporary housing through motels. Um, She's been getting some plaudits for it. She's moving very quickly. I think it's... um, It's notable, and this will probably set the table for some of the other things we'll talk about in the city of L.A., the city of Los Angeles really operates in these fiefdoms. The the city council is granted a tremendous amount of latitude over their own district, over development deals to take place, and over implementation of other things, particularly around homelessness. So in some of the campaigns that I was running last cycle in L.A., you know, we would have this line that what's good in good enough for Westwood ought to be good enough for West Adams or West Chester or West wherever, right? That's not in in practice the way things have historically run in LA. The main homelessness uh, ordinance, which is called 4118, which has to do with, you know, being able to clear areas around schools and other sensitive areas, they're, they're at the discretion of the city council member. So you would have people in certain neighborhoods that um, had a ton of encampments because that council member had a different philosophy and a different approach to clearing them than they would a few blocks away. What Bass is doing is coming in, partnering with these different council districts, bringing in additional resources and trying to move pretty aggressively through outreach. Notably, she's not clearing them the way it was done, say, in Echo Park last year um, with a large police presence um, and seems to be having some initial success. She's in a honeymoon phase. Right. And like everything else, I mean, mayor of L.A. is kind of where political careers go to die historically, but she seems to be doing pretty well thus far. 
Is there any thought that maybe what she's doing could be a model for any other major city that's experiencing these issues, which so many of them are? Yeah, so we just got a new um, head of what's called LASA, which is the LA Homeless Services Authority. It's kind of an interagency kind of thing. And in a lot of the debates around there, I saw one homeless advocate say, I believe in my heart we can fix homelessness in LA, and if we can do it here, we can do it anywhere, right? So that's kind of the optimistic thing. One in five uh, unhoused in the United States live in LA. Holy um, There that's are, it's, it's a lot of people. There's about 40,000, I think, in the city um un, unsheltered and yeah there's some you get into some of the different definitions and the big issue is that there's a lot more people losing their housing you know each day and, and la also gets um folks from elsewhere in the country that migrate by the way um, did I see, is there a new uh rental I don't know, ordinance or some some rental rules that just recently went into effect yeah so they just extended it and i, I was kind of leading into that I mean, that's sort of what's looming, right, is, you know, they're moving people off the streets, you know, by the hundreds, by the thousands, there's been billions of dollars allocated to it. But the problem is, is that you're getting people who are falling out of housing. Um, and again, the migration, inward migration problem as well, you're just, the number keeps growing, right? And it's sort of a, you know, it's always on the horizon there. So it's a very intractable problem. Um, and I think, you know, what, what is critical, I think from a political standpoint is addressing the encampment situation because it starts to play into the senses of public safety. It's incredibly visible while the encampments were encroaching on schools, on libraries, not just on business districts and sidewalks. And it was sort of sapping, I think, a lot of the political will of the public to address more funds, right? Basically, why would we keep giving you billions of dollars when the encampments just keeps sprawling? What's going on here, right? And it really made a lot of the um, individual council races and a lot of the more local politics, you know, really quite toxic and previously very popular politicians were then facing recalls over the homeless issue. Well, yeah, it, it's always struck me as in a way, a, a no-win situation for whatever politician tries to take it on because it's such a multi- faceted problem you know you there's mental health issues of course there's the cost of living in california which we all know is astronomical mm -hmm. uh there's drug issues i mean certainly fentanyl plays a huge role right now uh, we've seen it with with governor newsom you know when you pledge to take something on whether you created a problem or not or whether it happened under your watch or not it's now your problem right when you know both bast and caruso campaign so heavily on, you know, we're going to address the homelessness problem, it would seem like, you know, again, you're that's a really treacherous path to tread because if, if unless there's a really market improvement very soon, you are going to get that pushback and that cynicism from people that say, yeah, yeah, talk, talk, nothing ever actually changes. So, you know, have you got a sense for maybe what the mood is around uh her administration or anyone else is there is there a sense of maybe that this time there could be something different right so you know you've got this window where she has a lot of political capital where she can put her imprimatur on i think people are going to give her the latitude to do that and then you know the proof is in the pudding a few years down the down the road i think one of the big contrasts between her and caruso is caruso had this you know, businessman type thing. And, you know, Caruso can, Caruso can fix it and he'll come in. It was this kind of top down sort of, you know, we need a strong executive leader. Bass, you know, has a career in public service. She understands the kind of different um, levels of government, the roles they play. 
And, you know, the voters sort of went, went with that, right, and, and among various other reasons. And it could be a potential strength of hers, right? She's able to sort of cooperate with these other agencies, sort of put together. I mean, there's a negotiation and deal making that goes along there, too. And the county has arguably a larger role to play than does the city. You know, so she's got this phase where she can put her own mark on things, do what she would like, and then, you know, we'll see what happens. So speaking of Caruso, uh, what's he up to? I know that there was some talk uh, from people that maybe he would be able to brought into the administration in some way, or at least, you know, he's he's been talking about these skills that he would have to to deal with the homeless problem and that there would be some sort of a, you know, idea. I haven't of heard. Help. Is, is anything like that happening? I haven't heard, you know, and I think that Mr. Caruso probably has a lot of priorities with his own enterprise. I mean, that being said, the Bass administration has post left to fill, there's political appointments that could be there waiting for him if he wanted. Mayor not Bass to, not a, has not appointed uh, KDL to anything or like so. Speaking of other folks who have, have time. Also there. looking for his next step. Yes. Yeah. That was a good lead in, Tim, because, you know, we ha- we cannot talk about L.A. politics without talking about the ongoing drama around the city council and, uh, you know, the uh, special election uh, to fill Nuri Martinez's seat. What's going on with Kevin DeLeon? Uh, the, the the turnover on the council itself. Uh, walk us through a little bit of of, of what's going on uh, as the LA City Council turns. Yes, like sands through the hourglass, right? And it's really yes. been. I think that we're kind of entering a little bit of a new epoch in Los Angeles and, and LA City politics, and that is. Um, Partially uh, by virtue of just the passage of time here, but the the decades long struggle, decade long struggle they've had with corruption, going all the way back to Richard Alarcon, which is like a decade ago. But you've had you know three council members indicted in two years. There was the USC scandal with Mark Ridley Thomas. There's you know Garcetti administration had issues. His chief of staff had to step down, and there's the Rick Jacobs issue, which has blocked his pathway to India. Um, there's bribery and money, la- money laundering with Mitch Englander and Jose Wiesar. I mean, it compounds. I could go on. Suffice to say, you know, there's 15 members of the council. Um, you've got uh, seven new members um, as of now since a year ago. And some of that's by various means, right? <laughs> Appointments and so forth. Um, you have a new mayor and you have a new city attorney and a new uh, city controller. For those of those of us keeping track at home, that's 10 of the 18 elected officials are new as of now, um, since one year ago. And they are different kinds of folks that are now coming in. Um, what happened was, is in the early 2000s, you, you kind of get hit by term limits in the city of LA. And a lot of, you know, the kind of longstanding um, folks, not all of whom were noted politicians coming in, a lot of them were city staff types like Tom LaBonge and so forth. Um, they started to term out, and then you started getting the influx of uh, Sacramento politicians, so to speak, and really notable ones. Herb Wesson, you know, Viragosa both have been speakers. You had, um, you know, KDL was the pro tem. But even today, you've got Curran Price, Bob Blumenfeld, Paul Krikorian, Gil Cedillo is just sort of shuffled off. We had Paul Caretz, Felipe Fuentes, you know, it goes on and on and on. Even there was this very Sacramento heavy um, character to the city hall. And if you weren't a former legislator, you were a former city hall staff member. 
Now you have new folks coming in who have really no background in City Hall. Nithya Raman came in a few years ago, and she was kind of the first example of that. You have a couple new progressive members who come out of the kind of nonprofit sphere. You've got a number of attorneys. Um, you know, there's, there's many attorneys now in council, but you've got a couple new ones coming in who've never held political office before and have never worked in L.A. City Hall in particular. So that is really changing, I think, a lot of the character and the way the City Hall will operate. And it's, you know, a little bit of the dawning of a new day. What they're having to deal with is the legacy of this corruption and what is an incredibly toxic political environment. You know, if you tune into an L.A. City Council meeting, it's basically like a Jerry Springer episode <laughs> um, and something that, you know, personally, I think they really need to get a hold on. You know, the legislature, I don't think would tolerate people shouting down the members. They have to shut down the meetings. I mean, public comment you know, is like four or five hours. Having been to a lot of city council meetings in Sacramento, that's sort of the city council model is that, there, you know, at least when I have been at city council and they have the open, there's usually the person that gets up and talks about Martians and, you know, et cetera, mm. and they get their minute or three minutes or whatever it is. And that's, I have to say, that seems like sort of a standard of city government. You're right. That would not fly in in the state government, but at city model, it seems like that's not that uncommon. At California City News, we had a Gadfly Hall of Fame, right? You know, for your sort of tinfoil hat types. And it was sort of, it has been sort of accepted. But what it was not was four hours of people coming in turn, screaming expletives, racial slurs, and other kinds of things at the council. Right. Um, and really borderline violence. Right. Where the SWAT team has to, you know, the cops have to come out right here and stand between the gal gallery and the members. That is what has changed. Them from, that's just to protect the members from KDL. <laughs> right. Well, and, and if KDL comes in, it's it's 10 times worse. It seems right. it's you know what was at a rage boil six weeks ago seems to have kind of simmered. But, you know, it sort of speaks to this larger culture issue that I think is going to be difficult to surmount as well. I used to work in Orange County politics as well. And I used to tell people that Orange County, uh, L.A. politics were corrupt. Orange County politics were cruel. Now it's clear that the corruption has moved its way down the five to Anaheim and Irvine and elsewhere. But L.A.'s learned from its neighbor as well. And it's much more vicious now on social media between some of the members themselves. I mean, you heard the tape with Nuri, right? I mean, it's become very personal in ways that I don't believe it was 10 years ago. Maybe it was the collegiality of our of our former legislators <laughs> kept it like that. But, you know, it's both, uh, it's inside and outside of City Hall. It's become quite Rob, tough. Rob, I wonder though, see, uh, on that very issue, because I think we've seen this all over the country. Okay, mm -hmm. we, and we've seen it in national politics, state and local politics. It's, uh, and, and I think you're right. I think at the local level is where it's become really the nastiest and the worst. Maybe it's because that's where uh, some of this element has the easiest access to government is to go right. to a city council meeting and, you know, lose their marbles. But I'm curious, this new group of folks coming in that don't have that experience of being you know, a former legislator or staff or, or what have you, have is there any indication that maybe that new day means they're also um, not coming in with all that preconceived uh, anger to start venting right off the bat? Is there is there any indication that maybe these folks want to dial it down a notch and and make these mm -hmm. things a little bit more? Uh, cooperative and collegial, or or are they coming in just as hard and fast in their positions as 
as anyone that we've seen in the last five or 10 years. Well, not necessarily singling out the city of LA in this, but I actually think it's the opposite. You know, I think that if you were thinking about who ran for city council 15, 20 years ago, a lot of it was people who were kind of like mid-career professionals. And, you know, if Tim wanted to get promoted at the local bank, him serving as vice mayor was probably like a pretty good thing on his resume. You know, now Tim's boss would never want him spending his Tuesday nights getting insults thrown at him. And then they start tweeting and tagging his company in there and saying he's corrupt. Nobody wants to deal with that. So what you get more now is people that are a lot more ideologically driven entering local government um, that maybe don't have the experience working at the bank. So they don't really know how to read a balance sheet or help with the budget. Um, I think it's good because one thing you're getting, you're getting a much more diverse um, type of person coming in and more people are represented in the LA city council is as diverse as probably ever been male, female, um, you know, across the different parts of the city, different backgrounds and ethnicities. That's an unalloyed good. Right. And you have people that are accomplished professionals and you have people who are younger folks that have come out of nonprofit. I think that's great. Um, where the rubber meets the road is um, in the ideology. Uh, Councilwoman Rahman is someone who came in as a very ideological progressive, did not staff her office with people who had a lot of background in the city, and I think actually has turned around a little bit on that and, and um, you know, is uh, learning, learning the job. A little bit more and it will remain to be seen as some of these other members are the same way if they come in and they basically hire their friends who are twitter trolls to come in and work in city hall you know they may not be able to get as much done for their constituents as they would like well that's what i always wonder i mean you know you watch the state of the union and you see some of the behavior there and you know i think a reasonable person looks at that and and you know maybe feels some embarrassment um, mm -hmm. and, and really does ask that question. Well, okay, so what is what are these people who behave like this? What are they actually getting done for their constituents? And I think that especially at the local level, because at the local level, I mean, I, I know we've nationalized our politics on almost everything, but you know, at the local level is where traffic lights get fixed, right. and you know, school zone. Uh, speed bumps and all those things have to right. happen at the local level people actually the, the things that impact your daily life happen at the local level you cannot have gridlock out of the local level and so i you know i that's why i wonder you know is, is there some sense from the constituents going enough already get something done well, I think two things. One, I was on a panel at the end of the year, one of my former panelists was like, you know, these are nonpartisan offices, city council, and they should treat them like that. And I was like, well, you know, I'd like to be the king of Australia, but that's not happening either. If used to say that there was, you know, no Democratic or Republican way to fill a pothole, it's like, absolutely there is. They fill in that with prevailing wage labor, or are they, where are they sourcing their pavement? And in fact, we shouldn't have roads because cars are bad, right? You know, all of these issues are highly politicized and we have political people entering the office. The other thing that has happened is the issues that voters really care about. 20 years ago, if you were a Democratic partisan, you cared about the Iraq war, national health care, things that were adjudicated in D.C. Now they're talking about policing. They're talking about homelessness. They're talking about housing affordability. Those are local issues. And they have figured out that you can go to the city hall and get redress of your grievances, right? It's not far away DC where the issues you really care about matter to you. You have, you know, uh, 
the most partisan issues and also these very kitchen table type of issues um, matter locally. Um, and so that's why people, I think, are more engaged. Add on top of that, that you can get not just your three minutes on the dais, but you can get three million views on TikTok or whatever, because you went to City Hall and called the mayor a MF or whatever, you know, I don't know, can we swear? Yeah, <laughs> you know, and, and that's actually, I think there is a really interesting uh, thing there that the average Californian, probably the average American, they more than likely know who their mayor is, and they may probably even know who their city council person is, and they certainly know you're who being generous, is. but well, but then they have no idea who their assembly person is or their that, state senator is. That is accurate. <laughs> it, it, you know, they have absolutely no idea, and they, you know, they certainly probably couldn't name a single Supreme Court justice, but they know the the people on the ground in their city. They may know because they're on TV, or they may even run into them. You know, if you're if you're in Sacramento, you run into Daryl Steinberg at the grocery store like four times a day. Um, you know, you'll run into him everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, and then again, the national, you know, the president, they're going to know that. But it's it's all of that middle ground. So I feel like the local governments do kind of take the brunt. Now, on the other hand, I should correct that and say they probably have no idea who's on the board of supervisors. Uh, you know, speaking of board of supervisors, mm -hmm. Sheila Kuehl is, you know, people who had kind of a crappy time that she had uh, had her house raided, I think. So I don't know, this is a little bit of getting- Well, yeah, now you're talking about county politics and, and the sheriff and everything else. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think you make a great point. And again, I think that people don't have a perfect understanding of which level of government does what. You'll still at the council meeting here, people come in and talk about, you know, critical race theory in the schools, right? They have nothing to do with. But, you know, they do know that they uh, set the budget for the cops. They do know that they approve or more often disapprove housing developments. You know, they know who's responsible for that. And if you stop in the street and says, who's your assembly member and what they do, they say, I don't know. And they probably talk all day and take money from lobbyists. And are they wrong? <laughs> well, you know, the last thing I'll ask you on this, you know, as you noted, we've seen a really big influx of um, lawmakers at the state level going back down to the local level, mm -hmm. which is, you know, it, it's been happening for a long time. I mean, I I think maybe I go back to people like Willie Brown and Kurt Pringle and folks like that a long time ago, but but they, they seemed that was somewhat unusual. And now it's pretty common. Mm -hmm. uh, has all of this, you think, is this going to have any impact on that, whether it be with voters or with lawmakers thinking yeah. about whether or not they want to do that? I mean, term limits in the Capitol mean people have to do something, right? And they have to go somewhere. Um, I would argue that, you know, certainly the county supervisor gigs are a better job than most other jobs. I mean, take Janice Hahn, who, you know, could have spent the rest of her career in DC. You know, she came back to be a county supervisor, I think, because it's a better job. Paul Cook, came back from DC because it was a better job. You don't have to go back to DC. You make more money, you have a bigger staff and you actually get to see the outcomes of what you do rather than being, you know, spending 20 years getting seniority, you're out there and you know, you're you're producing stuff. I think it's a I think it's a probably a more enjoyable existence, right, than some of the state or federal level gigs. Um, but, you know, it doesn't always work either. Um, you know, Mark Steinorf came back from Sacramento and lost a districted election in Rancho Cucamonga. It's, uh, and I can think of other examples where they come back and people don't always want them back. And I think that in the city of L.A., it will become a lot harder to come back from Sacramento and run to represent Van Nuys or wherever, because 
because of this sort of prevailing sense about corruption and because I think also there's a uh, there's a there's a growing appetite for people who are not career politicians or that you know have a stronger nexus to the community. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I certainly understand that feeling. Well, what do you think, Tim? Hey, Rich, I think it's time for us to to go to everyone's favorite feature. Who had the worst week in California politics? The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. So, Rob, it sounds like you had some ideas. Yes, please. Yeah, so um, if I'm allowed to stretch back to late last week, uh, we had a recall election down here in the city of Downey. Um, which is, you know, recently produced a, a state legislator, Blanca Pacheco, down he's kind of in the southeast um, city's area. But it, uh, a relatively newly elected councilwoman, Catherine Alvarez, uh, was subject to a recall, and she was recalled with 90% of the vote in a relatively decent turnout election. They had like 20% turnout, which is not bad for a recall. Um, 90% of her constituents recalled her. Um, it turns out that she was a little bit of, we could call her the George Santos of Downey. Turns out that she had some things in her past, some perjury convictions, some welfare fraud convictions, a few other things that she had not divulged to her voters, um, but that the political class there in Downey got a hold of, qualified a recall. Um, and it was, I mean, I'm trying to think of another candidate or issue uh, that only got 10% of the vote. Wow, that is that is pretty spectacular. Yeah, to have 90% of your of the constituents vote to bring you back, that that's a slam dunk. I mean, there's landslides and then there's bomb craters. <laughs> yes, yes. That one that that is definitely a bomb crater. And then, uh, and you mentioned someone else, uh, a local official had. Uh, had yeah, another one. I mean, it's on a little bit more serious note. The the city manager in Laguna Beach had their home vandalized this week. Um, and I know, again, we're a family podcast, but it appears that someone has gone number two on their porch. Um, and I, I think, again, on a serious note, this is kind of of a piece with something that we've been trying to ring the bell about, which is sort of the, the protests at uh, public officials' homes, which is not necessarily limited only to local government. This is the first one I I can think of that affected a city manager, like a public administrator. But, you know, the, the sort of increasing rhetoric and temperature around activists of both sides, um, you know, both partisan sides do this. They, you know, accost the homes of the officials and it's bullying and, and threatening. And we've had, I don't know if you guys saw, there was, there've been two council members in New Jersey shot in the last week. Now yeah, the circumstances. Them, at least one of them, I thought they had said that it was not a political. I think one of them was more like there was a personal thing or something, yeah. but you know, nonetheless, horrible nonetheless. There's a there's a professor down in San Diego that's conducting a study right now surveying public officials about threats that they've received. And I mean, I can just tell you anecdotally, I work with candidates, I know many, many local officials, and it's it's a real thing. I mean, it's very much a real thing, threatening phone calls, menacing people coming to the house. You know, these people have regular lives and kids, and um, I think it's awful and something bad will happen. Um, so anyway, but having having poo on your front porch, that's a bad week. Well, I, you know, that's pretty bad. I'm, yeah, I'm not a forensics expert, but uh, I do believe that there's a lot of DNA 
in number two. So I would think that they'd be able to solve this one fairly quickly, assuming that that person is in the database course. Who knows? I have a new nominee for worst week. It's whoever at the Laguna Beach PD is responsible for that. (laughs) (laughs) That I agree with. Hey, uh, well, and Rich, so you had a suggestion. Uh, you had your thought on who had the worst week. Well, yeah, sticking with the local government theme, uh, you know, we saw San Francisco Mayor London Breed, uh, the city council there, uh, codified, uh, removed her ability to uh, request um, resignation letters as a condition, I guess, of of coming on board. Uh, which apparently she'd already stopped doing, but she was apparently had asked many, many of her appointees to submit an undated resignation letter as part of taking the job. And it caused a lot of furor at the time, but now the supervisors have agreed to officially prohibit her from being able to do that in the future. So that's a that's a little bit of a rebuke coming from from your city council saying, nope, I'm not going to let that happen. Was this like a Mad Lib where you would have to fill in the reasons for the recognition? <laughs> Resignation. Well, and, and I, t- like, I, Rob, <laughs> resigned my position for reasons. Right, <laughs> right. right. Adjective. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they do that. You know, I, I've certainly heard of this before at the federal level, like, you know, some, some presidential administrations, et cetera. I'm not sure I've ever heard of it at the at the local level like this, but, um, you know, San Francisco, much like LA, there is never a shortage of palace intrigue going on. So anxiously await the San Francisco version of this episode. Yes. Yes. And you know, it's funny, uh, with the resignations, it's like, we only know as public, we only know what eventually, uh, gets accepted. But, you know, I was just reading this book about the Lincoln administration and apparently Sam and Chase, who was in his cabinet would, would submit his resignation like every three days. And finally Lincoln accepted it. And he's like, wait, what? Uh, uh, he's like, thank you for your service, Sam and Chase. And off he went and Chase was like, I can't believe he accepted my resignation that I submitted 46 times. Uh, what a weird thing, you know, people sitting there like, Oh, do I, do I resign? Do I not? But you know, that is all taken out of the window in the, in the San Francisco administration where you've already submitted your resignation. You're just waiting to, to hear when it goes public. It feels like an antiquated thing anyway. Here's a letter, like I quit or whatever. I think the kids now, they just ghost each other. Like that'll be the new thing. When, you know, and, and uh, so Alex <laughs> Vassar, who, you know, we mentioned Alex Vassar on this podcast, should be like the Capital Weekly slash let's mention Alex Vassar podcast. Uh, but he, in the California legislation book that he published, he actually has a lot of resignation letters, uh, sort of the best, the best and brightest of the legislator who have uh, submitted their registration letters and he reproduced so much of them, the, both the shortest ones and the longest ones. Uh, and it's interesting. Some of them are very nice and you know, like marking all the things that they've done through their career. Some of them are very pissy. And then, oh yeah. Uh, and I've you seen know, a couple of those. The yeah, guy in so, Orange uh, County resigned from a city there, sent me his resignation letter. He's like, I resigned and here's my letter. It's like seven pages long. You know, no one read that. Not even, you know, no one is going to. Oh, yeah. They skip through page six. You're just skimming. Alex. I just want to see the two words I quit right after that. We're all done. Right. (laughs) I don't need to hear your 
your long-winded uh, reasons why, right? Because if you're giving a seven-page letter, clearly that problem has been building for a very long time, right? We've probably already heard all these complaints before. So yeah. why don't you just say, okay, per our thousand previous conversations on these topics, I'm just going to go ahead and shuffle out the door right now. Yeah, but that's the question. Who will be the first public official to quit via a TikTok video? You know, like, right. like the 15 second or, video, like I'm out, drop mic drop. Text message with hand wave emoji. Yeah. <laughs> the, the emoji resignation. That'll be the next thing we have. We have quiet quitting, quiet hiring, and now emoji quitting, right? That'll be that'll be the well, next thing. Of all of our choices, I I mean, I don't know. I'll defer to you two, but I would think that Catherine Alvarez sort of had the worst week. Uh, getting voted out by 90% of your constituents, that's hard to top. I mean, that's like, as A.G. Block once said, Californians would vote for free beer through the drive-thru. And like, I don't think free beer through the drive-thru would get 90% of the vote. <laughs> so I, I can't disagree with that, Tim. A 90% slapdown is pretty significant. Well, at least she's getting something out of it. Yeah. And yeah. Well, and here's a question. Was she, uh, this is probably a nonpartisan office, but do you know, was she a registered Republican or a Democrat or independent Green Party? What was she? I, I I do not, and Downey does have a little bit of a history of kind of partisan fisticuffs, right, in that regard. She said, um, I think she was a renter's advocate, and oh. I think in her commentary, she said, you know, they've just kicked off the only tenant on the council. I don't know if she said they evicted me, but um, she's chalked it up that there were, uh, you know, landowner, landlord-type interests coming after her, but um, they certainly had a lot of ammunition, if that if if that is the case, um, and so anyway, that's the way the voters came down. Well, Rob, thank you so much for uh, for joining us uh, today. No, and, I'm so happy to be here. You guys have a great week. To, always fun to get the view from the south. Yeah, come back and see us often. Uh, happy to issue guys dispatches from the provinces down here. <laughs> Absolutely, we count on it. We count on think, it. Thank you, Rob. I think we're the provinces. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, Maybe I think you haven't been are, to actually. Sacramento in a while, Rob, but we're... I was there a couple of weeks ago. Looks like Midtown's coming back. Yeah, true. Well, uh, maybe. Well, Midtown is actually fine. Downtown is still a little a little rough. R.I.P. Yes. Bud's Buffet. Uh, oh, the late great. You know, uh, so, you know, I, I can't actually... Speaking of worst week, uh, the worst week here in Sacramento was that uh, Sam's Hofbrau burned down. And oh, Oh my God, I'm heartbroken. I mean, the building is still there, but the interior is pretty, pretty much gone. And uh, one of my very, very, very favorite places to go eat and has been there since 1959, basically hasn't changed except for the prices since 1959. So uh, pouring one out for uh, Sam's Hop Route. God. Yes, that's a, that's an icon. So. Put it on the wall. That's our sad note. On that sad note, we'll all just... Salute and say thanks. Thanks, everybody. And uh... the Capital Weekly podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>